Well, we began last week thinking through this idea of waiting. We noted last week that kids probably feel like they wait an awful lot. And busy parents these days, especially in our hyper-multitasking tech world that we live in, probably never feel like they actually do any kind of waiting. They just do something while they're supposed to be waiting. Well, this week, I think we should point out that whatever you call it, waiting or longing or wanting, we're all longing for things, wanting things. We're looking for something to happen. Kids are longing for certain items on their Christmas list. You might be longing to be with family around Christmas time. You might for some years now, have been longing for a spouse or longing for healing in your marriage or longing to have children of your own or longing that a wayward daughter or son would turn. Maybe you've had illness of various kinds. You're longing for healing. You're maybe longing for a diagnosis with this mysterious health problem. What if more of us were bold enough to long for something which cannot be contained in this life, in this age, in this world? What if you and I were so bold and so rightfully restless that we knew that what we want and what we need is beyond the here and now. What if you or I would not ultimately settle for a better version of our same lives? What if more of us could say that if we were offered our very best life now, as one author puts it, that we would know that's not enough to fill us up finally and forever. That if we had a million wishes from a genie, that if we could design our lives down to a T according to our own preferences, that it still would not be enough for us in this life, in this world, in this age. You might say that's a bit greedy. Maybe we shouldn't want so much. Some may say it's a bit naive to think that there ever could be so much. But St. Augustine teaches us that it's neither greedy nor naive. In praying to God, he says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Nothing less than God will do, and we need more of him. King David in Psalm 16 prays to God and says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, you might ask, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, Christmas is a time to remember that as Christians, we live in the now and the not yet. 
or the already and the not yet. You see, we have God's presence and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with him if we're Christians. We have that now because Christ has already come. But we long for more of his presence still. We long for more peace, more joy, more contentment, more satisfaction, greater worship. And so we want Jesus to come again. We want him to make all things new. We want him to show himself to us face to face. Christians are a people who, in some sense, their longing is done. They have found what they're looking for. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Christian says, I found the one, and I've rested in him, and it's sweet. Jesus describes himself as water which satisfies, where you don't need any more water. You don't need any other water. But Christians, on the other hand, are a people whose longings should actually be growing. And so much so that they're not looking for all their fulfillment in this life now, in this age in which we live, but are looking for another. We're in a short series for the Christmas season. We're calling it Waiting for the King. In the celebration of Advent in the month of December, Christians reimagine what it was like for those before Messiah came to wait for Messiah to come and to long for and to pray for and to keep waiting for. That's the Old Testament in our Bibles, waiting for Messiah to come. We put ourselves in their shoes, we could say, and look through their eyes for Messiah to come. However, we know that we're not on that side of his coming. We're on this side. He has come. And so in Advent, we also thank God that Christ has come and that we're on this side of his first coming. While we realize he said he'd come again. And that'll be the final day. That'll be the consummation of all things. That's what we need. We need him to come. And so we're still waiting for the king. Advent is far more than a time to remember the babe in a manger in Bethlehem. It is that, and we thank God immensely for it and for the record we have in Scripture of it. But it's also a time for us to stir up fresh and deeper longings for more, to remind ourselves that we are awaiting people, and we are actually looking to an age and a place beyond the here and now, when Jesus returns. And according to Philippians 3, if you would, turn there in your Bibles. Philippians 3, according to Philippians 3, this is one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian. It's what they do. They look for, they look forward to, they long for Jesus' return. Or as Paul puts it here, we eagerly, await a savior from heaven who will bring us to heaven and who will transform our bodies and make everything new. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians as we read just a handful of verses from this letter. There Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Notice that there is a series of contrasts in our passage. Paul is comparing and contrasting two different kinds of people in relation to the Savior, in relation to life, in relation to his coming. We see two ways to walk in the passage, two worlds in which to live, and two destinies which await. So first, two ways to walk. Verses 17 to 19. There are two ways to walk. Paul says, note how we walk, note how they walk. What does he mean? Walk? Does he literally mean walk? No, this is a frequent metaphor Paul uses to describe life and the order of life, the way of life, how we do life. And Paul says some have a good walk and some have a bad walk. It really is in some ways as simple as that. Yes, there are degrees of morality and degrees of passion for the Lord, sure, but that's not his point here. He's not saying it's a matter of preference or that there are 31 flavors of walking out there. There are two kinds of walks. And we should know the difference because we're going to follow after some people. We should know how they walk. We should know what orders their lives and we should follow the right kind of people. Like Paul, Paul boldly but appropriately holds himself out to the Philippian Christians along with his missionary companions as examples to follow. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now Paul wasn't a perfect example. We know that from what came before. Look back to verse 12 of the same chapter. Where Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's not a perfect example. No one except Jesus ever was. But Paul and his partners are legitimate and good examples. He's not like those who shouldn't be followed, like in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's possible that these people identified with Christ. We don't know. We don't know exactly what they believed, what they taught. We simply know some of their features that are not only not worth emulating, but should be avoided. They walk as enemies as of the cross of Christ. They are not pro-cross. They don't get the cross or they're embarrassed by the cross or they are vehemently opposed to the cross. The Apostle Paul was like that at one point. 
Remember, before his conversion, he was against the cross. But something happened, and he made friends with the cross, you could say. He made friends with the cross of Christ and with the Christ of the cross. In fact, he recounts this for us in the same chapter. Look back to verse 4 of chapter 3. He gives a, a theological accounting of what happened. Looking back before he ever encountered Christ, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he runs through his Jewish resume, you could say. He was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But here's the change. But Christ came along, and here's his new perspective on things. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, every bit of righteousness, anything I could have commended to God to receive me and accept me. I count all that loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul made friends with the cross of Christ because he understood that his righteousness, his effort, his resume was not enough. In fact, it was done. You couldn't lean on that. You couldn't commend that to God. You must simply cling to Christ. That's called faith or trust or leaning on Christ. Paul had made friends with the cross of Christ, but not everyone had in the city of Philippi. Some there were still enemies of the cross. If you're not a Christian, do you realize that you're on that side? Enemies of the cross of Christ? I know that's strange and strong language, but I encourage you to read Philippians 3 later today, maybe throughout the next week, and keep thinking about what you're trusting in. Paul talks about a time when he was trusting in his own righteousness, trusting in his own religiosity, trusting in what he could do and what he could bring. And Paul says that's damnable. Are you trusting in something of your own doing? Or have you had this experience like Paul where you've come to the end of yourself, the end of your righteousness, and all that's there is the cross and what Jesus did for you? And then you just simply embrace it. And then you're changed by it. You see, if you don't get that, you're going to misunderstand and misapply everything else that's in our passage today and everything else that I'm going to say about it. This is the fork in the road, the cross. This is the only on-ramp to what follows. There's no other later on-ramp. And so make sure you get this. In love, I say that. Make sure you get the cross of Christ and know what side of it you're on. As for these who were enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul gives four other descriptions of them. 
He says their end is destruction. That is the end of their life, at the end of this age, they're going to meet destruction. Here's where it's going. When you're on the wrong side of the cross and you're against the cross for whatever reason, your end is destruction. He says their God is their belly. Backing up in time, here's how they live. Their desires, their appetites dictate their decisions and their direction. It's not simply about food, the belly, but it could be. It's anything physical, sensual, fulfilling. Their God is their belly. Their, their appetites dictate their life and their decisions. He says they glory in their shame. They excuse shameful acts by glorying in those shameful acts. They celebrate them. They flaunt them. They put them in the face of those who would disagree. Paul has said earlier in Philippians 3 that, that we glory in Christ Jesus. We don't glory in shame. We don't glory in ourselves. We glory in Christ Jesus. But these enemies of the cross, they also set their minds on earthly things. It's all down here. It's all in the now. It's all about them. It's all from the belly on down. Unlike Paul, who he says in verse 13, is straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 10, I just want to know him more. I want to experience the power of the resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead someday. Paul is not aimless in his pursuits or priorities. He's not stuck in the here, in the now, in the pleasures of the body alone. He is, he is looking to Christ. He's been transformed by the cross. So, so take note, Paul's not just comparing bad living to clean living. Immoral people and moral people. The gospel does have moralizing effects, we could say. It changes lives, but it changes lives from the inside out. Paul's not saying, here's the bad list. Now, I, I've been doing the good list. Do the good list like I've been doing the good list. No, that's outside-in religion. The gospel's inside-out religion. When we get the cross and we see Jesus for who he is, we're transformed by it, and we want to live like it. So what do you think of the cross? And has that impacted how you view life? Here and now, eternity, the future, fulfillment, priorities. Do you live for the here and now only, or do you live with your eyes on the horizon of eternity? At the end of life, Will your conclusion about life and death be something like Bertrand Russell's? He says, there is darkness without, and when I die, there'll be darkness within. There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Boy, that, that is dark, that is hopeless. I have an alternative interpretation for you. If you're not a Christian, let me suggest to you that every frustration, every bit of pain, every difficulty and worry in this life 
has come to you from a merciful God who wants you to know that this life isn't enough. That this life needs another life. That we actually do have to be born again. Bertrand Russell was wrong. It's not just emptiness and darkness and then nothingness. As one created in God's image, you've been made for something bigger than nothingness, but also more than fleeting fame or accumulating riches or success. In God's kindness, he's put within us a a desire for satisfaction. It's everywhere, right? We know that. That's driving so many of us, really all of us. We might have different versions of our attempts at satisfaction. Some even turn inward on themselves with melancholy and depression or even harming themselves. But it's all part of dealing with guilt and pursuing some ease or comfort or satisfaction. That's why we want another one of those. That's why we want a bigger one of those. That's why we got to get the newer one, the better one. That's why we want that over there. Oh, we strive for it, strive for it. We think that will satisfy. We get our hands on it. Uh, I mean, Christians, we still feel this, right? I always say my favorite car I've ever owned is my next one. (laughs) Right? I haven't had it yet. But I get it, and then, yeah, I see all the things wrong with it. i got to pay some repairs, and... Well, on to the next one. Yeah, it's in us to want to find satisfaction. But like, like the Rolling Stone said, we can't get no satisfaction. God is, God is merciful to not let us find full and final satisfaction in this world so that we look for another. Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street Journal some years ago, she wrote, Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be the poor, nasty, and short one. We seem to be the first generation that actually expects to find happiness here on earth, and our search for it has caused much unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, And if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, if that's what you believe, then you are not just disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches. You are despairing. So which one are you? We have two kinds of people in this passage. Are you looking to the proper examples if you're a Christian? And are you providing an example for others, could you do better? Well, secondly, we see two worlds in which to live. Another contrast in two worlds in which to live. The first part of the contrast is at the end of verse 19. Those who we shouldn't follow, well, they have minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Two worlds, two realms. There's earth, the now, in the scene, and then there's heaven, which is kind of now and unseen, and one day it's in the future, and we'll actually see it. 
That's where our citizenship lies, Paul says. And he writes this to Philippians in the first century. Philippians were Roman citizens, by and large, apart from slaves who lived there. You can imagine, Philippians in general then were proud Roman citizens at a high point in Roman success and culture and power. To be a Roman citizen didn't just mean you happened to be born in a Roman providence and you had a certain card that said you're a Roman. It meant to be a Roman, to, to, to be Roman in your thinking and Roman in your ways and Roman in your culture and Roman in your history, Roman in your allegiances not least to Caesar. But now there are Roman citizens in Philippi who've become Christians and they have a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. He's directing their attention to a higher citizenship than Roman citizenship, unthinkable in those days, a higher identity than being a Roman loftier conduct than what's expected of Romans, a greater allegiance than that to Caesar. Now, they weren't born into this heavenly citizenship. None of us were. Heavenly citizenship comes as a package deal of God's grace through Jesus. It's one of the many gifts slash responsibilities that were given when Jesus forgives our sins and welcomes us into the family. With the new citizenship, it means we're, we're in a new realm, and we have a new identity, and new desires, and priorities. We, we, have, we have new responsibilities, and greater promises, and, and new hope, and, and a new perspective on everything. We're in contrast to those enemies of the cross who set their mind on things of the earth. Just the here and now, just what's in front of them. Christian, what are you setting your mind on these days? What are you seeking after? Where, where do you find your identity? What, what shapes your identity? Consider the example we find in the book of Hebrews in several different verses. Like in chapter 13, here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city that is to come. Or Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking forward to that city which has its foundations and its builder is God. Or chapter 11, just generally about God's people. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to call them to, to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. Now let's make clear that we aren't supposed to try to escape this world as if we ever could. We're not supposed to bubble ourselves up. We're not supposed to block ourselves off from the rest of the world. That's not what heavenly citizenship means. Jesus in John 17 made it so clear as he prayed for his disciples. He, he prayed to the Father, don't take them out of the world, but protect them in the world. They are not of the world, Jesus says, just like I'm not of the world, but they are in the world, so protect them. And protect them with your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify them with that. And then he sent them out into the world on mission to represent him to the world. 
We don't remain pure simply because of a lack of proximity to the world. We're purified by God's word, called to be his ambassadors in a city that is really in some ways not our own. We could speak in terms of dual citizenship at this point. God doesn't want us to eject from governments and nations, but even to submit to them. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's. Give Caesar your tax and your honor and obedience unless he contradicts Christ. But you give to God what is God's. That is your life and your worship and all of your trust and your highest allegiance. There's still a place for Christians in nations, under governments, even feeling patriotic. But when push comes to shove, there can be no debate. When kingdoms are in conflict, when allegiances are tested for the Christian, there can be no question as to who wins out. Their primary identity, their primary allegiance, their, their primary priority, their primary calling is of heaven and God and Christ. Not the United States of America, not the party you vote for. It's God. It's Christ. It's heaven. That's an immense privilege. And it takes frequent reminding, doesn't it? We forget. We forget that this is in the Bible. We forget that this is our identity. We need it poured into ourselves. We need reminders to ourselves and to each other that our citizenship is in heaven. That we're, according to Colossians 3, supposed to seek that which is above where Christ is already and not seek things that are on the earth. We're to set our mind on, Paul says, things above. By the way, I think this explains something of the change in desires and direction that we've spoken about already from Philippians 3. You see, we Christians used to be all about self, all about the now, just like verses 18 and 19 talk about. But not anymore. Oh, there's still a bit of that for sure. It's dying a slow death, yes. But it is true. We can say the cross has changed our priorities and our identity, and we're not totally about self and merely about the now. Now. How did we get there? Well, not through grit and determination. It's because we understood something of the cross, which has transforming power. And it's also because we've come to realize something of our heavenly citizenship, and we're living that out. And it's also because we have come to know a Savior, a Savior. And we love him, and we long for him. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul uses Savior and Lord here. Yes, it's elsewhere in the Bible. It's a frequent designation for Jesus. But I think it probably would have struck a, a powerful chord here in the Philippian church with all these Roman citizens. Roman coins in these days bore the image 
of Caesar, along with his twin titles, Savior and Lord. Caesar is the boss. Who can doubt that? Caesar is who you count on. If your city encounters a natural disaster and you need relief, where do you look? You look to Rome. You look to Caesar. Caesar represented what you trusted in and what you put your hope in and even somewhat what you worshipped. That's implied in the days of Paul writing Philippians. It would actually be legislated just about a decade later. Emperor worship. But Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, and they're in heaven, ruling and reigning over all creation, not just the Roman world, but all creation, is Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Honor Caesar as Caesar, yes, but you worship Christ. He's the King. He's the Lord. So look to him and also look for him. Long for him. So thirdly, there are two destinies which await. And again, notice another contrast. The first half of which we've seen in verse 19, those who we shouldn't follow, their end is destruction. That's their destiny. Verse 20, how about us? We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He'll return. And he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In the end of time, there will only be two options, two places. And they are permanent. There is no purgatory in the Bible. There is no second chance after we die or the Lord comes back. So you've got to get this right. You've got to be sure. And if you've come to understand Christ aright, if you have his sacrifice and the gift of righteousness on your behalf, in other words, you're a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you've come to not trust in yourselves but cling only to the cross, well, then you don't just have the absence of destruction. That would be good news all by itself. It would be good enough news, let's say. It'd be good enough news to find out that you once were headed towards destruction, and now no more destruction. But then citizenship is layered on top of that. And more than that is Jesus himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where Jesus is, and he's coming for us. So notice the first part I want you to notice about waiting for Jesus' return is that we're waiting for him. We're not waiting just for an event or just for results that come from that event. We're waiting for a person, the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. We are eagerly awaiting him, as most English translations have, eagerly awaiting him. Not just on hold, but panting, longing, looking, wanting more. We, we have him as Christians, but we dare say we want more of him. A.W. Tozer, he said, he said the soul's paradox is to have found God and yet still pursue him. The Christian pursues God now 
through the Bible, through worship, through prayer, through the fellowship of the church. But we also long for more when Jesus returns. When the Bible describes Jesus' return to Christians, it really plays it up. It even plays up the personalness in the emotion, the experience of it. Just listen. Like in 1 Thessalonians 4, we, after trumpets blow, will meet the Lord in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, when Jesus comes from heaven, on that day, he will be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says he's going to receive a crown and this is true for anyone who loves his appearing. Christians love the idea of Jesus appearing, returning. Hebrews 9 says that Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 1 Corinthians 13 says, right now we see him, but only in a dim mirror in the pages of Scripture. But one day we will see him face to face. 1 John says that when we see him face to face, we will be changed into his image right then. We'll see him and we will be like him. Our Bibles end like this. They will see his face says Revelation 22. Longing for Christ's return, longing for Christ, is a distinguishing mark of true Christianity. Now, if you've lost sight of this, that doesn't necessarily mean you're for sure not a Christian. But be careful here. This is a distinguishing mark of God's people. And yet it is possible that this has slipped off your radar, you could say. Maybe you've been content to look in the rearview mirror of God's plan back 2,000 years ago. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins. And maybe look out your windshield three feet or so into the future and simply ask him that the next three feet would be fantastic for you. That this would be the best three feet of your life. Not... Not thinking about the fact that there's a horizon of eternity ahead that is far better than anything the three feet ahead of you can bring. We've got to encourage each other with this because we're forgetful people. And people around us are preaching to us the here, the now, this is it. The advertising world works on, on these principles you need this, it will fulfill you, and more. So buy now. And whether we buy their new gadget or not, we better not think that they're telling us the gospel. They are telling us a gospel, but it's, it's not the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us to encourage one another with these words. These words of Jesus coming. Encourage one another. Keep talking about it. Think on it more. Christmas time is a great time to test this out. 
What are we longing for? What are we looking forward to? What's on the horizon? What do we want to happen? What are we longing for in 2018? Have you forgotten that 2018 or any year is too light a thing to put all your hope in? I mean, probably 2018 won't be that good. Let's just say it might be pretty good. And let's just say you have a banner year as far as you go. What then? Huh? How how light and small is that in light of eternity, in light of glory, in light of encountering Christ? Have you forgotten that this world is in so great of disrepair that it won't be fixed with another president, with a better economy, with a better you, with a new exercise plan, with a raise. Advances in medicine won't stop what's inevitable. We're dying. Our bodies are corrupting. They're wasting away is the language of 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, just take that small little window into this thing we call life of sickness and weakness and fragility and death. Aren't allergies a frustrating thing? Little things that you can't see go up your nose (laughs) and ruin your life. (laughs) It's crazy. We're going to die. We're under a sentence of death. We need transformation. And so praise God, Paul here speaks not just of Jesus himself as what we're awaiting, but we're awaiting transformation. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now the lowly body part, I think we can understand. Paul's not speaking in terms of us being created in the image of God and hence the pinnacle of his created order under angels. No, he means these bodies are under a curse. These bodies are wasting away. We can feel entropy happening, especially in your 40s and 50s and 60s, and on it goes. We we groan, but we don't groan without hope. Romans 8 says we groan inwardly, waiting for the completion of our adoption in the family of God, but we look to the redemption of our bodies and we wait for it with patience we believe as scripture says here that though our bodies are lowly or wasting away or weak one day we will have something like jesus's glorious body what does that mean well something like his resurrection body no corruption no sin no death no hurt Like in the words of Revelation 21, he'll wipe every tear from our eye and there'll be no more death and and no more mourning or crying or pain anymore because all of that of the former world is passing away and he is making all things new on a personal level. If you're a Christian, Jesus will fix all that's wrong in your body someday. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't just work on the macro level. You know, let's get 
the global economy fixed, and yes, some are going to fall through the cracks, and they won't be improved for it, but, but generally it'll be good for the whole. That's how the world thinks and has to, because that's as much as it can do. But Jesus tinkers with bodies to get them perfect and all fixed and no longer under a curse and no longer feeling the effects of sin. He does that to people, individuals. How particular and special and intimate and personal is that? He is making you new. He will someday. We're not there yet. So when your body hurts, when you're not sure what that lump is, when the doctors don't know, when you're scared, just look on the horizon. It's coming. It's coming soon. We don't know when, but we can, we can know it's coming. So I ask you this morning, by way of review and application, what are you waiting for? What are you longing for? What are you wanting to happen? Where is the gaze of your eyes for the rest of your life and forever? What world are you living in? What world or realm are you identifying with and and being shaped by? What world are you longing for? And how's your walk while you wait? You know, your walk, not just where's your destiny, not just are you okay with Jesus coming back whenever he does, but in the meantime, as you wait and as you long, how is your walk, your decisions and priorities and aims and hopes? This Christmas, may God give us more of his presence and grace and power that we might cling to the cross all the more, that we might cling to him all the more, that we might long for more of him, that we might go looking in his word and among his people until he comes again. And let's pray with John in Revelation. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we do pray that you'd come quickly. We do long for you. We want to long for you more. We want that to be reflected in our use of the Bible and our interest in your worship. We pray for more of it. We pray for your help. We believe, but help our unbelief. We love you. We want to love you more. We know there are some here, Lord, that don't long for you, love you, haven't yet come to even really understand you. Lord, would you this day give them faith? Would perhaps this day they have some kind of experience like Paul did where they once were trusting in themselves or something else man-made and they've given up on that and they are clinging only to Christ and claiming only his righteousness Or perhaps today, salvation like that would happen. We pray, Lord, that we would, in this Christmas season, long for you more, focus on you, 
not be distracted with that which is supposed to point to you. May we even now, with your help, sing of your coming, Lord Jesus, with great expectancy and excitement and with feet that are not tied too tightly to this world but are longing for the next. We thank you for such great hope. Amen.